done it? Agatha Christie done it. It's Schmanners. I'm your husband host, Travis McElroy. And I'm your wife host, Teresa McElroy. And you're listening to Schmanners. It's extraordinary etiquette. For ordinary occasions, hello, my dove. Hello, dear. We're recording in my new recording setup, so if it sounds super crisp, that's why. But also, it means Teresa and I are about six inches away from each other. <laughs> uh, not quite that close. Not quite that close, but we are a lot closer than we usually yeah, are. Yeah, hi. <laughs> it's like I could reach out and touch you. You are touching me. Oh, wow. Stop it. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> oh, but it's nice, huh? Clean, no room tone, huh? Pretty good. Uh, oh. Now, listen, I'm so excited this week. This is, uh, I am going to present this episode. This is a subject that is very, very, very special to me. We are going to be talking about Agatha Christie, the queen of mystery. Ooh. Yeah, right? Did you make that up? It sounds like somebody else did. No, yeah, no, I mean, that's. That's what she's known. Oh, that's okay. what she's known as. Okay, all right. Um, and now you know, as as is often the case, sometimes when we do a uh, biography, one might ask Agatha Christie, why, <laughs> why? <laughs> excuse me, she isn't an etiquette or manners or whatever person. But here's the thing: we, we she's a major contributor to the zeitgeist and to the uh to. Uh, Every, like, depiction of detective everything from then on out. Yes, absolutely. I, I, I would argue. <sighs> okay. Folks at home, sorry, this is going to be divisive. I think Hercule Poirot is better than Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> well, so I think that they are separate but good. Because Sherlock Holmes, so if you're in the world of Hercule Poirot, Yes. He lives in, quote, the real world where uh, Sherlock Holmes in his world is fiction, right? So he talks about Sherlock as a detective story. So he's not a real thing. So it's kind of like they're they're like those those nesting dolls. Uh So Sherlock is inside and then Poirot. Hercule Poirot. You can say Poirot. Poirot. Poirot is on the outside of that, and then the our world is on the outside of that. Sure. So, like, it's they're 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 apples and oranges. And listen, I'm going to spend a chunk of this talking about Poirot uh, because I think the way that she writes it is incredible. But since I made the bold statement, let me say why. Okay. And this is a personal preference. I love whodunit mysteries, right? And I'll talk about what makes a whodunit mystery a whodunit mystery. But Poirot as a detective. Is is very smart, obviously, incredibly obviously. intelligent. He uses those a little gray cells. His little gray cells and order and method. But he doesn't he I he isn't a like superhero detective. Oh, of I course. Think, I think Sherlock Holmes represents this like incredible mind, right? That like is head and shoulders above everybody where Hercule Poirot, like his whole thing, especially when he's talking to people like his best friend Hastings, he's like, anybody could do this if they just like sat down and really thought about it and had order and method. Like, 
that this is and so it really encourages the reader to like pay attention put the clues in order you can figure this out everything is in there there's no like ah but in order to be able to solve this you have to know this obscure thing about this poison and i sherlock holmes know that it's like no i've given you everything and if you could just sit down and like lay it in order you could solve this yourself. Not to say Sherlock Holmes isn't without his faults, because he has his faults. Absolutely. The whole drug-taking thing. Well, yeah. and the sociopath sure. business. Um, so, But we're not talking about Hercule Poirot right now. We're talking about Agatha Christie. It's true. Did you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. she is the best-selling author of all time, surpassed only by William Shakespeare and the Bible? Wow. Right. So when we talk about impact on culture, yeah, it's kind of hard, right? And yeah, and you know what I think is interesting is, I I think that while obviously Agatha Christie gets a lot of love, right, mm-hmm, a lot of respect, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't think she's talked about on the same level as like your William Shakespeare's. Now, of course, William Shakespeare, uh, greatest p- playwright of all time, arguably, right? And and you know, but. To be the best-selling author right behind Shakespeare and whoever wrote the Bible <laughs> um, is is then, like, she is not taught in schools the way Shakespeare is taught in schools. You know what I mean? Like Not she... in a dissecting kind of manner exactly. the same way that Shakespeare is. But I think it, it really has to do with the idea that it's it's light fiction, right? So it doesn't sure. have it doesn't have the kind of, like, weight that, say, like... The War of the Roses kind of does. That's yeah. that's the reason why I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying that it it seems that she's in inconse- the writing is inconsequential because of the genre. I I I believe in my heart that in say 200 years, I think Agatha Christie will be taught in like college, like, assuming colleges and schools still exist <laughs> at that point and we're all not just beaming knowledge directly into our brain chips, I think that she will be taught that way because I do think that there's- Well, a, I mean, we read and then there were none. Right. I think that there's school. a certain amount of like historical nature to Shakespeare where it's taught as like history as well as literature. Yes. As well yes. as, you know, yes. theater. That's it. And I think eventually it'll be that way with Agatha Christie, because that's one of my favorite things now about reading it and watching adaptations of it is it's all like 1920s, 1930s glitz and glamour and stuff. And mm-hmm. I'm way into that. Obviously, we make Obviously. this show. Okay, but let's talk about Agatha Christie's early life. She was born Agatha Mary Clarissa Miller on September 15th, 1890 in the southwest of England. Now, even as a child... She loved making up stories. Uh, She wrote poems at age 10 and shortly after wrote her first short story. And we know this because she labeled it my first short story. (laughs) Uh, Do you think that making up stories is is kind of like a euphemism for lying a lot? Maybe. (laughs) It's possible. Because right now when Peavy makes up stories, she's like, and then the candy went to bed. And that's about it. And I'm yeah. not saying that's the end of the story. That's the I'm, whole story. That's the beginning, middle, and end of the story. <laughs> but she titled it My First Short Story, and her grandson still has it today. Um, she wrote uh, uh, in the manuscript of her autobiography, quote, One of the luckiest things that can happen to you in life is to have a happy childhood. And I had a very happy childhood. And that is what I find interesting, especially of the time can I, period. Can I say, whew. Right. 
This is the thing. Thank goodness. Especially for the time period, contemporaries of other authors of the time to be like, it's pretty fine. <laughs> that is not true. Now, her whole life was not, you know, cream and berries and dreams. Who's Who's is? Yes. But like she had a good relationship with her parents. Her parents had a happy relationship with each other. Uh, like her mother was like her best friend. She wasn't born into abject poverty. No. Now, her father passed away when she was 11. Okay. Um, and then that did put her family into some financial tight spots, right? And also, you know, especially at 11 to lose a parent. I lost my mom when I was 21, and that yeah. was a big defining event in my life. I can't imagine, you know, if it had happened a decade earlier. Well, you were a full-grown adult by that right. point. Yes. Now, here's what I did find interesting. <laughs> Just completely randomly, her mother decided that she wasn't going to be taught to read until she was eight. Arbitrarily, it seems. So she just taught herself how to read. So one day, like, her nanny came to her mother and, like, I have bad news. <laughs> she knows how to read. She matilded uh, herself. She matilded herself. I have bad news, Miss uh, Miller. She done matilded herself real good. <laughs> um, and and she says her mother was her hero. That they loved her very much. But then the question is, how did this happy-go-lucky kid become the queen of crime? Now, I found this so interesting. Are you okay. ready for this? I'm ready. She claims, said, I have no reason to disbelieve her, that in her dreams in childhood, there was a character named the gunman, that's what she called him, that would just like appear in her dreams, that she would be like having a dream about a tea party, and the gunman would roll up, they'd make eye contact, and she'd wake up screaming. Wow. Yeah. That's heavy stuff. Yeah. I mean, especially since... Since, I mean, we're okay, she's 10, right? We're talking about 1900. Mm-hmm. There's not like the kind of violent media that we have. Right. She wasn't watching like Nightmare on Elm Street or whatever. Yeah. That's okay. I That's interesting. Right? Where did that come from? And, you know, here's the thing. I feel a bit of kinship to this because I I had. Oh, you had a very overactive imagination. Oh, very overactive imagination. And I had a. A character that recurred in my dreams that I called the Dreamwalker, mm-hmm. who would just recur in different dreams and be there and like not be part of it. I had an evil My Little Pony that recurred in my dream. Okay, that's a little bit different from someone that I would call the Dreamwalker. I mean, yeah, but it's still scary. Okay, don't negate my experience. No, I'm just saying that one time the Dreamwalker said, "Don't be afraid, it's just a dream." And I opened my eyes in real life and fell back asleep, and he said, "See," but that I guess that's kind of like a My Little Pony. <laughs> it was an evil My Little Pony had a skull face. <laughs> uh, there are also those uh, who would say that Agatha Christie's actually idyllic uh, upbringing might have contributed to her writing of mysteries because a lot of her stories are set in like idyllic towns where it's like, oh, everything is, seems so nice on the surface. No, none of these people could be killers. They're all upstanding people. But below the surface, you know, there's storm clouds and, you know, you know, walking through these like hidden secluded areas in the forest and blah, 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 blah. Right. Uh, there was also the fact that while she had siblings, they were a decade older than her. So mm. she spent most of her time playing by herself and imagining like in her family's garden and stuff. Um, that and- is always a really great breeding ground for a uh, for an imaginative mind, someone who is like forced to play by themselves. Not that I'm saying you should 
force your children to play by themselves. What I'm saying is they, <laughs> they, they don't need to be entertained constantly because the imagination can bloom. Well, and I also think that there's something to be said. Man, once again, as I often say on the show, there's a child psychologist who could give a way better like lecture on this than I can. But I think it's probably has a big impact on a child psychology when you think of like they're not an only child, right? Mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the parents have raised children before them, but they are a decade younger. So they do spend a lot of time. So the parents have had parenting experience, but the, the child is often isolated away from other children. I don't know. There's probably something there. So. Her, as I said, her father passed away. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people also believe that this contributed to there's a lot of money as motivation for oh, murder yeah. and stuff, where it's like at times where it's like you see a lot in, at least in Poirot novels. I, I admittedly have not branched out into the other ones, but in Poirot, there's a lot of our family used to be rich mm-hmm. and now our finances are failing and maybe we're getting a little desperate. Yeah. That happens a lot. Yeah. So despite this, you know, her life went on. Uh, she moved to Paris when she was 16 to study singing and piano. Mm. Uh, and then she was an eligible bachelorette about town. So one would say that she was accomplished. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Um, and she came out to society, as we've talked about, you know, making one's debut mm-hmm. in Cairo. And wow. yeah, and the surroundings inspired her to make her first attempt at a novel titled Snow Upon the Desert. But admittedly, writing was not her first concern. She was more interested with finding love. Oh, yeah. Well, save that awe. Oh, well, I mean, she, uh, I said awe because you said finding love instead of finding a husband. <laughs> True. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think what what we will see over and over again with Agatha Christie is she was a very passionate person mm-hmm. uh, and, and followed those passions. You know what I mean? Uh, in 1912, Agatha had five proposals when Archibald Christie, or Archie, came into her life. They met at a social dance. Uh, and, you know, at that point, there were dance cards, you know, that would right, fill yeah. up. And, We've talked and about Archie that, I think, like, right? We've yeah. talked about dance cards. Right. Yeah. And Archie was like, tear up that dance card and dance with me, baby. And he probably <laughs> didn't say baby, but it was implied. And she was like, okay. And they were immediately smitten with each other. Um, and and it gained some steam, even though her mother was her best friend in her hero, gained steam when her mom was like, I don't like this Archie fellow. Oh, of course. Yeah. Forbidden love when is you, always sweeter. When you are a passionate literary, you know, like person, that like, oh, this is making a good story, mm-hmm. right? It gets you. It gets you. I mean, it's that whole reverse psychology thing, right? That's the whole like, tell me that I can't, and of course I want to. Well, especially when you're living for adventure, and yeah. you're, you're like, this is my life, right? No one. Ad- this is my life, mom. In case anyone was wondering, no one ever opposed mine and Teresa's love. <laughs> Um, but that doesn't make it. No, it's sweet. still very romantic. I'm just saying no one opposed it. Um, so then World War One broke out and Archie was a pilot in the Royal Flying Car. The car. He flew in a no core. <laughs> the Royal Flying Car wasn't invented until Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Now, during this time, uh, he was convinced that he would die in the war. Right. I'm sure I mean, a lot of folks were. It, it was statistically very probable. Yes. So while he was on leave, he and Agatha got married in secret in Ooh. 1914 before he went off to fight. Again, and, that's a that's something that occurs a lot in her books. Yes. 
A lot of their secret marriages. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and during this time, uh, a lot of people believe that what she did next impacted her a lot and impacted her writings. When when her husband went off to France, uh, she volunteered to become a nurse treating wounded men sent back from the front and helping out with like medical operations and stuff. And and she had had a rather sheltered background. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of firsthand experience with violence had a huge impact. on her. Okay. Okay. She said in a 1974 intra- interview, I was shaking all over, but everything in life one gets used to. Um, and, and this is, uh, when she <laughs> met and befriended Belgian war refugees. <gasps> right. I'm starting to put it together. Right. And this is when she began writing her first novel in earnest, The Mysterious Affair at Styles, which is also the first Hercule Poirot novel. Who is a Belgian. A Belgian war refugee. Yep. Um, she began writing it in 1916. And uh, she used to come to Dartmoor, a national park in the county of Devon, many times when she was a girl. And her mother sent her there once she learned of Agatha's work on her first novel. Her mother's stance was if she didn't go away, she'd never finish the book. And Mm. thankfully, she followed the advice and she would walk the moors for like six hours at a time, just like saying dialogue out loud to herself. Now, as is... I wonder wonder if Agatha Christie ever like thought about making them into plays instead of books. Well, maybe eventually, because we'll get to this, but she did write some plays. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and as is so often the case when we learn about these like famous authors, musicians, actors, the, the sentence usually begins with this. After several rejections, mm-hmm. The Mysterious Affair at Styles was finally published in 1920, um, and it's centered on the murder of a rich heiress, but most importantly... Used her meetings uh, with with the Belgian war refugees to give birth to Hercule Poirot. Uh, and it was, of course, a huge success. Everyone loved this book. Um, and it is also where we see the first kind of uh, inklings of what would become her signature style, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Now, this, I will take a moment here to talk about the whodunit mystery and why it is a specific genre within mystery. Okay. Right? So a whodunit can be defined by a couple um a couple features one it is it someone who did it is a character that has been introduced okay right so you know the character you just don't know that they're the murderer okay. right so it usually like for example very modern example of this is knives out right where we are introduced to the characters and it is one of these characters who done it what about clue clue yeah, Another great yeah, example. Okay. It is one of these characters who done it, right? There's not like for example, CSI is not an example of who done it. Okay, because they are looking on the outside for the person who's the murderer. Right. And okay. in the last act it might be like, wait a minute, what's this fingerprint? Who's this person? They done it, right? So the another feature of the whodunit is I'm going to, as the author, give you the clues as the detective finds them that will then allow you to figure it out as we go along, Mm. right? And so I would say it differs, uh, and we're looking at, at this point, another very popular genre of mystery at this point in time, like the hard-boiled detective drama, where I would say in that, it is more about 
the detective following leads and like out there pounding the pavement and asking questions, right? Which is kind of like the opposite of what Poirot does. Exactly the opposite. Okay, okay. Because he's all about like, I don't care about fingerprints and clues and stuff. I want to talk to everybody. Exactly. And so the whodunit is a lot more of like, well, we're going to just put together like basically a recreation of events. Mm-hmm. And it's not so much, I know this dirty mob boss in town and he has connections that can help me figure out who robbed. No, it like oh, that's okay. the hard boiled thing. So to your point, Poirot is a very interesting detective, right? That I think to this day, the, one of the reasons it holds up is it is not, as you mentioned, about fingerprints and footprints and a cigarette butts is mm-hmm. often something made fun of. Because all of that stuff can be misleading, according to Poirot. And we actually see this now a lot in modern day criminology, Uh where we see like DNA evidence turned over and fingerprints evidence turned over because like we thought it was so concrete at the time. And we're like, yeah, but actually we're looking at it again and it turns out this, right? Right. Where what Poirot does is psychology, Mm -hmm. right? Like, well, you think that this person did this. But why would they do this? That doesn't make any sense. Like, and sometimes people were like, well, maybe it was completely out of character. And Poirot's point is like, people do not do that. Right. It's yeah. like, we have to look at the psychology of the crime. What is the motivation? What is the, what was the thinking? Why did they do this? And then this, and then this. So a lot of times, like what Poirot will get hung up on is there is this one point that you think is so convincing, but it makes no sense that they would have done that. Right. So like, for example. So this is this is even different from the the fictional uh, Sherlock Holmes. Right. Because he's always talking like he does a little bit of the psychology. Yes. But he also is like the whole I'm smarter than you thing where I can figure out everything. I figure out all your tells by your physicality. Well, but there is also with Sherlock Holmes a lot of like, ah, you said it happened this way, but I know this thing about this metal that would mean that it wouldn't be able to happen that way. And so I know you're lying. Okay. Right. Where Poirot is a lot more like, for example, in Death on the Nile, which uh, is the new Kenneth Branagh movie coming out based on uh, Poirot, There is an element where it seems like somebody's trying to frame somebody, right? But they threw the murder weapon overboard. So if you were going to frame somebody, why would you get rid of the thing that could, like, really clench the framing? So that is what he gets hung up on. It's like, yes, but then why would that happen? So in trying to answer these questions that he has, why would this happen? Why would the person do this? That is what leads him to the next thing, right? Okay, okay. And it is by... Like putting those things in order, order Mm -hmm. and method is the thing he always pushes, that he is able to make a case together. Now, we're going to keep talking about Agatha Christie, but how about some thank you notes for our sponsors? This week, we'd like to say a special thank you to Native Deodorant. Listen, deodorant's great. I think so. You know what I mean? And what I love about Native Deodorant is it feels light on you. It doesn't, you know, feel all clumpy and gross. It's not full of a bunch of ingredients that, like, seem like they should be in some kind of science experiment and perhaps a Marvel movie. They are all, like, recognizable things like, you know, coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch. 
and it's also vegan and never tested on animals, and it smells great. I, I'm a big fan of their scents, uh, you know, like coconut, vanilla, uh, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, citrus and herbal. My favorite, I like that cucumber and mint. I like it. Those are two things I like in food and also in my armpits. I enjoy Native deodorant, and I think you will too. And Native is risk-free to try. Every product comes with free shipping within the U.S., plus free 30-day returns and exchanges. So make the switch to Native today by going to nativedeo.com slash schmanpod, or use promo code schmanpod at checkout. I don't know why I'm saying it that way. It's really hard not to say schmanpod. And get 20% off your first order. That's nativedeo.com slash schmanpod. Or use promo code SHMANPOD at checkout for 20% of your first order. We also want to say a special thank you to Varsity Tutors. A lot of folks are thinking about how the new normal is affecting children's education. It's been challenging for students to transition from being in a classroom for seven hours a day to learning from home. Varsity Tutors delivers free live enrichment classes taught by experts that makes learning fun. It's really cool. It's a great program. Um, I think it, it's going to make it easier for you to feel like your kids, you know, are staying on top of it, no matter what their learning situation is going to be. And they have hundreds of free online classes to enrich your child's education experience, whether it's a class taught by an astronaut, musician, or wildlife expert. There are fascinating subjects for everyone. Man, all of those are right up BB's alley. And I'm sure that there's countless other ones that she would be into. And listen, she would sit through them, and she's only three and a half. So imagine how much your kids will enjoy them. Varsity Tutors also offers one-on-one tutoring, self-study tools, learning pods, and homeschooling resources. Varsity Tutors has a 4.9 out of 5 satisfaction rating, and you can't beat that. I guess you could with a 5. It doesn't matter. 4.9 out of 5 is amazing. To reserve your spot in a free class, go to varsitytutors.com slash schmanners. That's varsitytutors.com slash schmanners. Give your child the confidence and keys to success today at varsitytutors.com slash schmanners. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. I'm Sydney McElroy. We're both doctors. and Nope, just me. Okay, well, Sydney's a doctor, and I'm a medical enthusiast, and we create okay. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. Every week, I dig through the annals of medical history to bring you the wildest, grossest, sometimes dumbest, Tales of ways we've tried to treat people throughout history. Now, lately, we do a lot of modern fake medicine because everything's a disaster, but it's slightly less of a disaster every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org as we bring you Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine. And remember, don't drill a hole in your head. It's also believed uh, that her time... Oh, we're back. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hello. Uh, it's Welcome also back. That her time uh, working with doctors and everything... Uh, contributed to the fact that a lot of her books, uh, The Murder Weapon is Poison. Oh, yeah. Uh, and in Murderous Affair at Styles. Uh, well, it also feels like, I mean, for someone who's exposed to a lot of violence, mm-hmm. I feel like poison is kind of like the most quiet way to die. I mean, not, I mean, not for the person who's dying. It can be quite horrible. But it's not like... It's unobtrusive as far as like the people around you. Well, I think it, there's a reason that that it is written about as a uh, thing for you know like a murder method so often because 
unlike a gun or a knife, right? You could poison someone and before they ever ingest it, like poison, put it in their thing, then be miles away when it happens. Ah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot harder, unlike you can can find the person dying, right? And Mm -hmm. not know who it is, unlike a gunshot wound where it's like, well, I heard the gun go off, you're standing over them holding the gun, and you're covered in blood, so. (laughs) Um, And so it's used a lot uh, to great effect. So the end of the war brought Agatha a period of joy, right? Her books were doing well. She created, uh, you know, Hercule Poirot, beloved. And her husband came back? And her husband came back. Oh, husband didn't right. die. And he didn't die. <laughs> um, and here's the other thing that, it, it, even if you didn't know anything about Agatha Christie's real life, reading her books would tell you that she clearly had a great sense of humor and like loved like being fun and funny. One of my favorite things is in uh, the Poirot books, there's a character introduced named Ariadne Oliver, and she is a female detective writer who has a character that I think he's Danish maybe. And she finds him annoying, but people <laughs> love him. And like the whole character is clearly poking fun at herself. Right? Exactly. And she and like it's it's so funny. There are there's also one point where so Hastings is kind of the Watson mm-hmm. to to Poirot's Sherlock. And there's one in the same way that a lot of the books are from his point of view. Yes. Yeah. And there's a, a point where like where Poir- I think it's Hastings is sick but makes a really good point that Poirot had not thought of. And he's like, your brain must be overheating. That's amazing. This must be a result <laughs> of your fever that you were able to come up with this. You don't usually work at capacity, yeah, exactly. but this fever is really is really contributing. This is also when she gave birth to her beloved daughter, Rosalind. And as I said, her career took off. They started traveling around the world. And I love this. While visiting Hawaii... She became one of the first Europeans who learned to surf while standing up. Okay. Yeah. Go, go, Agatha. Great, great work. I can't surf. Not that I'm extremely athletic in any way, but that's impressive. I love finding out like these completely like non-related to their career things, like that uh, Harry Houdini was the first person to fly a plane in Australia. <laughs> like these things, it's just like, okay, cool, great. Uh, in 1925, uh, they moved from London to Sunningdale and Agatha bought her first car, a Morris Crowley, and she described it as, quote, an experience as fulfilling as meeting the queen. Wow. Yes. Now, uh, this Wait, next- had she met the queen? I don't know, probably at some <laughs> point. Um, and now this next part is going to contain a spoiler for the book, The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So if you haven't read it, maybe skip ahead like two minutes. But this period of adventure and stuff, then she wrote The Murder of Roger Ackroyd, which contains a a very, um, what's the word I'm about? Hot, hotly conflicted opinioned uh, convention known as the unreliable narrator. And as far as I know, I think this is the first like prominent example of the unreliable narrator where the narrator of the book is the murderer. Oh. And so like he is lying 
as he uh-huh. narrates to us. Okay. And then at the end, when Poirot confronts him, that's when he's like, yes, yes, it's true. And I told you about that. Oh, that's, that's got to be hard on a reader. That's right. a lot like in a play when you have to act like you're lying, but you have to kind of like show the audience that you're lying, but you want the other person to believe you. And yeah, that's rough. Yeah. But that said, it is uh, believed that this was one of her all-time favorites that she wrote. And it, look, don't get me wrong. He's very good, right? I think it's just like really hard. If you, the problem is you can't go into it knowing that. Okay. Or it ruins the whole thing. It ruins the whole thing. But the feeling at the end where you're like, wait, then how is I supposed to figure it out? Right. Which is like one of the beloved things about the whodunit. Um, so this should have been, you know, amazing time for Agatha Christie, but. Uh oh! This is where uh, the 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 bad, the secret bad comes in. Nothing gold can stay. Um. So as with so many people, and I'm I'm going to say that these are two separate ideas. Okay. That many people, uh, historians and biographers will link. I'm not going to do that because I'm not comfortable doing so. But it is believed that point one, after the Great War, uh, Archie was, you know, damaged, right? And that is the word of of them, not me, that he was described as damaged. Probably that means post-traumatic stress. Yes, yes. Um, And then point two, he developed a wandering eye. Mm, yes. Okay. And as I said, I'm not going to connect those two ideas, though a lot of biographers do. Could uh, be a, a then, could be an ant. Ant, right? Which made it difficult for... Agatha. And so uh, he met a very attractive young woman named Nancy Neal um, and started to develop uh, feelings for her. Now, here's the thing. I will once again uh, step away to say anyone who's read Agatha Christie books knows that this like marriage, then a new person comes in. And, like, starts to disrupt it, and now there's a murder? It's a common trope. Very common. Oh, yeah. It happens. I feel like we've listened to probably, like, three or four books that that happens into. Yes. And so she kind of denied to herself and to others that there was a problem going on. And then, to make matters worse, way worse, her mother passed away. And this was, remember, her best friend, her hero, all of this stuff. And while Agatha was at her family's home packing stuff up after her mother's death. Archie rolled up and was like, hey, by the way, I'm in love with someone else and I want to divorce. That's the worst. Yeah. Now, get ready, folks, because here is perhaps the most interesting part of Agatha Christie's entire life. Okay, well, there's not enough room in here because I want to sit on the edge of my seat. Oh, yes, but you would fall off. But I would fall off. Okay. At this point in her life, Agatha Christie literally disappeared. What? Yeah. No, wait. Okay. I have heard of this mm-hmm. in the way of like people have written other books and movies about Agatha Christie disappearing. Correct. It also happens in the, I think, very good Doctor Who episode. Yes. Yeah. Unicorn and the Wasp, I think it's called. So it's like got Donna, so you know I love it. So like she actually disappeared. So like yes. nobody heard from her. On December third, nineteen twenty six, she said goodnight to her daughter and walked out of her house at a quarter to ten with a suitcase, got in her car, and was gone. 
The next day, a boy walking around the bottom of a nearby hill stumbled upon the car. The hood is popped, the lights were on, and all the doors were open. And that was her beloved Morris Crowley, now abandoned by the side of the incredibly remote road. Kid calls the chief constable, William Kenward, and a full blown uh, a full blown search begins. Because okay, in the so back I, of the car was Agatha's expired license and a coat in the back seat. Okay, so first question. How old was her kid, Rosalind? Uh let's see, at this point, nineteen twenty six versus uh nineteen probably I would say maybe like six years old, maybe Aww. a little less. That's terrible. Right. Second question. Well, she definitely wasn't left there all alone, you know. There are definitely, like, house staff. Well, yeah, but, like... I mean, still, yes. Yeah. But I, I just don't want people to think she was like, bye, kid. Good luck having some dry Rice Krispies in the morning. <laughs> Mom out. Second question. Uh-huh. Her autobiography. Did it come out after she disappeared or before? Well, I'll get to that. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So... At this point, the police go bananas searching for her, right? There are all these terrifying theories and, uh, like, they send out, you know, 300 men and dogs. And, of course, it's Agatha Christie, so they're all like, ah, maybe it was one of her books come true. I don't think anyone thought, well, you know what? I say that. I thought you were going to say, like, come to life. (laughs) Maybe. So they get not like like Indian in the cupboard, but like. Absolutely. They get bloodhounds, divers, search parties, airplanes, like anything that they can find to the point where they bring in mystery authors Dorothy L. Sayers and Arthur Conan Doyle. To search for her. That's exactly who I would bring right? in. But doesn't that sound like straight out of a fiction story? Like, Absolutely, it hey, does. You were, it's like it's like Castle. <laughs> it's like the show Castle, where it's it like, is. hey, you're a mystery writer. Help us solve these mysteries. Exactly. That's okay. exactly what I would done would have done because if you're if you've disappeared and you're a mystery novelist, yeah. who would know your mind better than another mystery novelist? Listen, if I ever disappear. I want you to get the ladies from My Favorite Murder okay. to solve it, Deal. right? Have podcasters solve my podcast mystery. Okay. So she is found after missing for 11 days. And here is what supposedly went down. And it's contested because, you know, who knows? Uh, but, well, they pretty much know. I'm, I don't mean to be a conspiracy theorist, but I like to be. Because in Doctor <laughs> Who, it's like, well, she forgot because of the aliens. Um, <laughs> so on December 3rd, she heads out saying she's going to drive to London and 24 hours later turns up at a hotel and spa called Swan Hydropathic in Harrogate, which was 230 miles from where she started. And she checked in under the name Teresa Neal, hmm. the name of her husband's mistress. Oh, yeah. um, so. She claims that she's Mrs. Neal from Cape Town, South Africa, and she lost a child and needs to recuperate and to be left alone if possible. So during that time, two men from the hotel who played in the band recognized her and very quietly went to the police and informed them instead of claiming the 100-pound reward. Cool dudes. But that didn't stop a media circus. It came the day that she exited the hotel. And in fact, there's still a plaque in the hotel's lobby. 
Um, so there's all kinds of speculation as to why she did this. Um, some think it was a publicity stunt for her new book, but that doesn't ring true from if we're talking about psychology, right? Right. Because she was known before then and after then to like not really claim, like not crave, I should say, like the spotlight. Mm-hmm. She just like writing the books and living adventure that like the books provided for her. Mm-hmm. She wasn't really like a big flashy person in that way. Others thought she was trying to get back at her husband. Once again, doesn't really ring true for me. And still others believe it was a nervous breakdown. And that, like, that feels more right to me. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely some heavy things going on. Right. I don't know. I mean, but if you have a nervous breakdown, why go through the the trouble of creating a fake story? Like, why not just tell your your well, daughter, like, hey, I need mommy needs a vacation. So uh, you stay here and I'm going to go check myself in at a well, little spa retreat for a while. So, you know, it's cool. I think my my theory on that, my Poirot psychologic theory, is that it was that she didn't want spotlight, that she didn't want it to be a thing. Because his- But if you don't want spotlight, why not tell everybody, I'm okay, just leave me alone, and instead well, of disappearing? Would, because that would imply that in the nervous breakdown, she was thinking clearly and logically. And I think that those are, are contradictory ideas to each other. But if you, know? you don't want spotlight, why create a scene at all? You know what? It's when you still, could very quietly just check in. It's still in doubt. Um, but here, here's the thing. After this, her career goes on. She divorces Archie and mm-hmm. never speaks of it again. The little Oh, uh, that doesn't sound healthy. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe during that 11 days, she processed it, worked maybe. through it, dealt with it, and was like, okay, I got more stuff to do. I can't live in this moment. I got to go on. Um, and... Like, she talks about it very little. She barely writes about it, as you asked. Like, it's barely a thing. Um, and and she doesn't, as I said, she doesn't really like uh, the, the after this, it, it cements in her the very deep dislike for press, journalists, and crowds. She says she, she felt like a fox being hunted. Quote, I always disliked notoriety of every kind, and now I had had such a dose of it that at some moments I could hardly bear to go on living. Yeah. Here's the thing, though. You know how you keep people from chasing you? You don't run. <sighs> okay. Now, here's... There is a biographer. That's also how I keep people from giving me unflattering nicknames. Yeah, you just don't run. Don't answer. <laughs> oh, don't I answer. Say, I thought you were saying you don't run, but that's fine. Uh, I also don't run. Yeah. So there's an Agatha Christie biographer named Laura Thompson who believes that clues to the, this mystery can be found in her Mary Westmacott novels. Now, Mary Westmacott was not a character, but rather a pen name that she wrote under from 1930 to 1956 when she wrote six novels. And the reason that she wrote under the pen name, uh, presumably, is that unlike her novels that she wrote under her, her real name, in the Mary Westmacott novels, they are not tied up in neat packages. There is not a clear solution to the crime. It's a lot more chaotic. There's a lot more like stuff churning up and like being left with all these questions. And so it's not exactly a new genre, but it's not exactly her style from yeah. the other books. And I think that happens a lot where an author known for a certain genre or style 
wants to branch out and picks a pen name. Yeah, and and these books are also a lot more emotional. Mm-hmm. Where, uh, you know, as we talked about, Poirot and and her other novels are are very logical and very like. You know, like we're moving forward. We're talking about psychic order and method, psychological. We're moving forward, right? Where the Westmacott novels are a lot less satisfying in the way of like, oh, order a movie letter, but it's a lot more like visceral. Okay. All right. Um, and so, uh, after this, um, oh, and during this time, uh, in 1949, the uh, Sunday Times exposed her, uh, pen name. In 1949, which was very upsetting, and she stopped writing the Westcott novels a couple of years later. Uh, so, after this divorce, she craved adventure, and so she went to Istanbul on a whim. And do you know how she got there? The Orient Express. Okay. Oh, okay. We made it. We might, we're finally here. So this began her love affair with the East. And also, if anyone who is a fan of the Poirot series will see that this is when she started like writing novels, that Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, like stuff that happened in Egypt, stuff that happened like in the East, right? And This like, is when Poirot starts traveling. Correct. <laughs> Can I tell you my favorite thing about Poirot novels, just in case, uh, before I forget, that they're so different, right, from time to time of how Poirot interacts with the story. And this is not about what we're talking about, but in some, he's like the main character who's in every scene, and in some, he's barely there. <laughs> he just like pops in, he's like, oh, what was happening? Okay, cool, here's what it is. Bye! There's one... Or like, someone writes a letter to Poirot, and he's like, mm, no, I don't think so. Yeah, there's one that I'm trying to remember that we listened to recently, but it, like... He is in a little scene at the beginning, and then he does not come back for two and a half hours. It's so good. Um, So Murder on the Orient Express, surely you're aware of it. But to me, I think it is the greatest mystery novel ever written. Uh, I would think that some people agree with you. There's been a million adaptations. There's been screenplays. There's been, uh, you know... Different cuts. There's been... I mean, it's it's mentioned in other works, you know? And uh, it, I would say as an adult, it is my favorite book. Um, I have reread it and re-listened to it probably over 10 times. What did you think of the movie? Um, I thought it was a fun movie that I went into with very low expectations and enjoyed. Mm-hmm. It is not the same. We're talking about the most recent the Kenneth movie, the Kenneth yes. Branagh. There have been other movies. Uh, it was not the same as the book. It is a different vibe. There's some like action sequences which but is... This is not his style. Very unlike. But <laughs> all in all, I thought it was a very... Who's the actor that does the miniseries one? David Suchet. Yeah, I mean... You can just look at the the way they have styled Poirot in those and know that this man is not going to run on a train. There is well, there was one we watched recently where like he solves oh there was the death on the blue train where like he solved it and then like looked at a cop and he was like go get someone urgent urgent <laughs> and then stood there watching the guy run away yeah um, but yeah they they make some action sequences in it but all in all I think it's good I mean if you haven't seen it I'd read the novel first but that was it is I I fell in love with the Potter series I think like two maybe three years ago when Justin and I were on a trip together and he was like just listen to this one and I was like okay and I listened to it and then immediately I listened to every Poirot novel in order at that point. As you do. This is uh-huh. vi- that is very in character for Consumed. you. And I've done it a couple of times since then again. Mm-hmm. Like I think right now I'm on my third re-listen of all of them. You're just 
you're just a completionist through and through. Uh, yes, absolutely. I'm a binger. So this is uh, at this point in her life is when she meets Max Malawan, who is a cool dude. And they end up falling in love. He is uh, an archaeologist. Um, and so this is like right up her alley, right? We see once again at this point in the Poirot novels, it, it, he starts visiting a lot of dig sites mm-hmm. uh, and she would go on dig, you know, digs with him and everything. And they got married in September of 1930. Um, and uh, let me just, first of all, Agatha Christie wrote a memoir in 1946 titled, Come, Tell Me How You Live. Which is just a great title. Okay. And she writes of her experience with him uh, and, and going on these digs. It is like standing on the rim of the world and looking down on the promised land. Uh, and one feels much as Moses must have felt. Oh. Yes. But she doesn't write very much about her disappearance. Nope. Um, and so most people know of Poirot, but she wrote a lot of like characters and series, right? So there was I would say her her other famous creation was Miss Marple. Yes, yes. Yes, Miss Marple is a, an older lady who mostly her detective style is meddling. A little murder she wrote. Yes, very murder she wrote, I would say. And like, you know, she's just kind of meddles in people's affairs to solve crimes. She's like a grandmother who's just like, "Oh, yeah." And it well, not a grandmother, but it is based off of Agatha's own grandmother. Um and it was a huge success, but that's not all. She uh well, I should also mention Miss Marple has been played by Angela Lansbury, Helen Hayes, Geraldine McEwen, uh, and of course, uh Poirot has been played by David Suchet, Kenneth Branagh, and John Malkovich recently. Oh, uh, really? The, yeah. Um How so, did I miss that? It's a more recent like series. It's not a movie. Oh, okay. Um and that's not I I mean he's been played Tons of times. Um, she also had characters named Tuppence and Tommy, who were a husband and wife detective team, um, an ex-MI5 agent named Colonel Race, who also appears in Cards on the Table, a Poirot novel with uh, uh, Ariadne Oliver, Colonel Race, and I think Lieutenant Battle of Scotland Yard. Okay. Um, okay. And uh, then, of course, Ariadne Oliver, um, lots of characters. Uh, so it's kind of like she has a little like multiverse going where, where they, the characters that she creates kind of interact in different styles across her books. Yes. Okay. Um, and, you know, at this point we hit. Is that War. what I mean? Multiverse? Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. okay. Sure. Okay. It's, it's the Christie verse, if you will. The Christie verse. Yeah. Um, and during World War II, um, she had a huge cultural impact, right? Because she wrote novels that let people escape, right? Mm-hmm. And and it was a time of chaos and a time of like, who knows what's going to happen next. And so having books that were all about order and method and solving things and stopping feels killers. Feels very comforting. Very comforting. Very comforting. That's why I like to watch the same TV shows. Yeah. It's like hanging out with my friends. Um, And, you know, she wrote 70 detective novels over the course of her life, as well as short fiction. I had no idea she was so prolific. Oh, yeah. And she became known as the queen of crime or the Mm -hmm. queen of mysteries. And to this day, she has sold more than two billion copies. 
billion, billion. Don't don't pop those bees too much. I can't help it. <laughs> um, and as you asked earlier, not only that, in her later life, she wrote some plays. Okay. The Hollow, Verdict, and The Mousetrap. <gasps> yes, of course. Yes. The Mousetrap. The Mousetrap op- opened in 1952 at I the can't... Ambassador Theater. I can't believe I forgot about that. Listen, there's a lot to cover, right? Um, the play had more than 8,800 showings and ha- holds the record for the longest unbroken run on London's West End. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a, a pillar of theatrical yeah. like stability. As we've also mentioned numerous times, her, her books have been turned into TV shows and movies, including Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, Then There Were None, Appointment with Death, and countless others. Um, so, uh, they, Agatha and Max, uh, settled in Winterbrook, Oxfordshire, uh, shortly before the Second World War, uh, and that was their home until the, she died. Uh, in 1956, she became a commander of the Order of the British Empire. In 1968, her husband was knighted, and she was made a dame commander shortly after in 1971. And fun fact, her and her husband are among the few couples who were both knighted for their work. Huh. Yeah. Okay. That's pretty cool. Um, but knighting doesn't really get you much, right? I mean, no, but it's a cool title. I'd like okay. to be a knight, okay. you know? Um, I wonder how much comes with Dame Commander. Uh, probably an army. Um, so <laughs> she continued writing until 1974, despite her health problems. As she aged, her memory began to slip, which, can you imagine? No. I mean, like, that. It's that's, it's so painfully ironic, like dramatic irony, that, like, it hurts. Um, many believe that, you know, she suffered from Alzheimer's, uh, and dementia, uh, and she, uh, eventually passed away of natural causes in 1976. Um, and, you know, like, here's the thing. At this point, I, I, I could go on and on. I'd be interested to see what happened to her daughter in the way of, like, Probably lived off those sweet royalties forever. <laughs> uh, living in the shadow of such a great writer, you wonder you wonder what they do. I don't know. I'd have to imagine, though, just based off of, and I didn't research that, and neither did Alex, but you have to imagine that after she had such a great relationship with her mother, you'd have to think she was a pretty good mom, right? I hope so. Yeah, seems like it. But here's the thing. Except for the leaving part. Well, but that was extreme circumstances. I'll do... Ugh. I'm not saying I would leave you and BB if I had a nervous breakdown, but I'm not saying I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't. Hey, it's okay. So, uh, you know, that's that's it. She's super cool. And I I cannot stress enough how much I love the Poirot novels, how much I love Agatha Christie's writing style. It's funny. It's fun. Uh, and I also think that one of the things that I think makes Poirot such an endearing character is he has foibles. He is lovable, um, but without being like he is, he is fallible. Yes. But without being in any way pitiable, like she makes fun of him at times, but is also clearly proud of him. And like he's, he's not unassailable as a character, right? And but so, he's also not an anti hero. Right. Exactly. Is he's just a fairly cool dude who has, compassion and strong morals and all that stuff. If you haven't read them, please do. Travis introduced me to them in the same way that he introduces a lot of stuff. He just kind of like put it on Uh in my vicinity and now I'm interested too. Yep. 
<laughs> That's how it happens. So I need to start reading the other ones too. You know, I think I've done the Poirot books enough that it's time to do like Miss Marple next. I think. Okay. Um, but yeah, Agatha Christie turns out super cool. Check her out. Uh, and that's gonna do it for us. And first and foremost, I want to say thank you to Alex, our researcher, without whom we would not be able to make the show. Uh, so thank you to Max Fun, our podcast home, and thank you to all the members of Max Fun who support. Uh, us and Max Fund's efforts. Uh, let's see. What else, Teresa? We always thank Brent, Bruntlefloss Black, for writing our theme music, which is available as a ringtone where those are found. Also, thank you to Kayla M. Wassel for our Twitter thumbnail art. And you can tweet at us at SchmannersCast. That is where when we do um, question-centric Schmanners, that's where we get all of our listener submission questions. Thank you to Bruja Betty Pinup Photography for the cover picture of our fan run Facebook group. Some good stuff going on in there lately. Uh, if you want to join that, that's called Schmanners Fanners. Um, and we also want to thank you for all of your topic submissions. And that is you can submit one if you email us schmannerscast at gmail.com and that's going to do it for us so join us again next week no RSVP required you've been listening to Schmanners Manners Schmanners get it MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.